it really is a blessing having to dodge kids on the way up here to the pulpit. Uh, you know, just a reminder of all the wonderful work that the Lord is doing back there while, we'll in, while, while we are in here. All the work that the Lord is doing in the hearts of the kids and, and many kids here uh, hearing the truth of the scriptures proclaimed. We're so grateful for that. It really is a humbling and weighty thing to stand before the people of God and to declare his truth, to declare his promises as we just uh, saw every promise of his word. And I want to thank Walt for preaching last week from Second Timothy and especially after having been uh, challenged with uh, what was going on that week with Sharon. What, what an incredible testimony though, and I'm, I'm glad that Walt was able to share that. What an incredible testimony to the providence of God. You know, when we look at these stories of these distant historical figures, 4,000 years ago, I mean, this isn't, you know, the time of uh, Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin or the time of the Protestant Reformation, or for that matter, even the time of Jesus. This is 4,000 years ago. And we are seeing these stories, and it's easy just to see them as distant. And unrelated to our lives, but they are deeply related in that they declare to us the God whom we worship. And we saw, even in that little story there that Walt shared, the God of Abraham is the God of Sharon. is the God of each of us who belongs to Christ. If you will, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 29. We continue to walk our way through Genesis. Some of you may say we're running. Some of you may say we're crawling. I don't know. Somewhere in between, I guess. But we are walking our way, moving our way through Genesis. And we find ourselves now in chapter 29. For a while now, we have been looking at the fact, as I just said, that the God whom we worship, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, The one true and living God is, by definition, as he has determined, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is this last figure in that list, as we see throughout the Bible, he's referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's this last figure, Jacob, who has occupied our attention now for the last several weeks. We've been looking at this figure, Jacob, and we will continue to look at the character Jacob and God as the God of Jacob, which we must always remember the scripture here is about the Lord, that the God who is the God of Jacob, we'll continue to look at that on through until the end of the book of Genesis. So what have we seen so far in the life of Jacob? Just by way of review and introduction as we come to our text for today, what have we seen so far in the life of Jacob? Well, I think we could summarize it all with three words. Three words to capture what we have encountered so far in the life of this patriarch. And they are election, deception, and protection. And I'll briefly go over those. So election. Before he was born... God chose Jacob over his brother Esau to carry on the covenant and blessing of Abraham. And as we've talked about before, in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul makes clear that this election 
of Jacob over Esau was not because God looked down into the future and saw that Esau would despise his birthright, being a godless man, but it was, as Paul is very clear there in Romans 9, before they did anything either good or bad. Now, it would be strange to say that God chose Jacob before either of them did anything either good or bad, and to at the same time say that election is God's choosing of those who will choose him in the future. Do you see that? So if that is an issue for you in your understanding, and I had not really encountered the concept of election until I was about 18 or 19 years old, and maybe that's you. Maybe you've been coming here for a while, and this is a strange concept for you. It's just very odd. God chooses some and not others. I would encourage you to come and talk with us as elders, and we can direct you to some books that will help you to understand what it is that we believe to be true from the Scriptures. But this story here with Jacob and Esau is a great illustration. In fact, Paul uses it, as I said, as an illustration for this doctrine. So we see doctrine coming up through narrative. But that's the first word, election. God chooses Jacob. But then we see deception. As Jacob grows up, becomes an adult, we have him getting the birthright, wrestling the birthright away from his brother Esau in this this, uh, very opportunistic moment where Esau's exhausted and Jacob takes his birthright, says, sell it to me for a bowl of soup. And Esau, the godless man, the worldly man says, okay, here, just give me some soup. I'll give you my birthright. But then we see later on that Jacob is involved in an incredibly deceitful act. In concert with his mother, he deceives his father in order to take the blessing from his brother Esau. So his father's older and blind, and and he's ready to bless Esau, sends him out for a hunt. Rebecca hears, she goes to Jacob, they concoct a plan. She sends Jacob in dressed ridiculously with furry hands, because his brother's hairy, excessively hairy. She sends Jacob in. He's got this goat skin on his arms. He's wearing this stinky garment of the field. He goes in and pretends to be Esau, and his blind father blesses him instead of Esau. We see the deception. But the blessing stands. It is God's will. It is God's intention, not by those means, but the conclusion is God's will. And so we see protection. Election, deception, now protection. Last time in chapter 28, we saw that despite his deceptive act, Jacob is sent away from his brother's hostility with the blessing of his father. So the first blessing Isaac gives to Jacob, thinking he's Esau. But then at the beginning of chapter 28, Isaac gives Jacob the blessing as Jacob. And then we see he goes on his way to find a wife to escape the hostility of his brother. And while he's on his way, the Lord meets him in a dream. In chapter 28, we see when God meets him, uh, Jacob's ladder, you know, the stone he's sleeping, he has a dream and he sees a ladder and there are angels ascending and descending. The Lord is at the top and the Lord who is sovereign, who is, who is actively involved in the affairs of earth with the angels moving up and down, speaks words of promise and assurance to Jacob, telling him, look, I, the God of Abraham, I, the God of Isaac, am also your God, Jacob, and I will be with you. When the Lord appears to Jacob in the dream, he says this to him. Verse 15 of chapter 28. You can look there if you want. This is key for what we're going to look at today. Verse 15. Behold, 
I am with you. This is the Lord speaking to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So what do we have? The Lord promises to be with Jacob, to watch over him and to bring him back to the promised land. So today, as we enter into chapter 29, we really get to see the first phase of this watchful care. So we've seen, uh, Jacob has lived quite, he's already at least 40 years old. He's over 40 years old. So God has been in his life up to this point. But what we're about to read today is really the first chapter of this new story of God with Jacob. The first chapter of this new story where God will be a God to Jacob and God will watch over him and care for him and see that he makes it back to the land. And this first phase of that story of God being with Jacob deals with Jacob's wife, or I should say wives. This first chapter of this new story, this new section of Genesis, this first phase of this watchful care involves Jacob's Wives. Remember, he's been sent away to find a wife from his relatives. The, Rebecca sent him away. She went to Isaac to, to get Isaac to send him away because she's worried he's going to be killed by, her, by his brother because Esau's angry that Jacob stole the birthright and Esau wants to kill his brother. Rebecca finds that out. She wants him to go away. So she goes to Isaac and insinuates that he needs to be sent away to find another wife so he doesn't marry the women of the land. Isaac blesses him and sends him off to his relatives. And that's where we pick up today. The title for the sermon this morning, as you'll find in your bulletin, and you can see that there on the back of the first page, is Jacob's Wives. And we'll be looking at chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. So if you would, please go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this because we believe that we are not studying uh, moral tales or ancient stories for life, or things that we just teach our kids, we stand because we believe that this is the voice of God. We open up his word, we are hearing God speak to us. And one of the defining characteristics of a Christian is that he or she hears the voice of God. So let's come now to God's word. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. This is God's perfect and profitable word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, well, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking, 
with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your daughter Younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But... In the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another Seven years. You can go ahead and be seated. Let me just say two quick things about this. We, we read a story like this. You know, it's, it's, it really is, this is an intriguing story. Uh, th- these stories that we're reading, by the way, I should just say, have a kind of dramatic intrigue and a historical significance. That's not why we study them. We study them because they are the word of God and they instruct us in the Christian life and they point us to God's redemptive plan in and through Christ. But on a purely literary level, these stories are dramatically intriguing. These are, these are really good stories. And I mean good, not in the ethical sense. And they are also... They are also quite um, significant historically that for thousands of years, people have known these stories, have reflected on these stories. Have, you can go through uh, the Louvre or the museums at the Vatican or anywhere in the world, major museums, the Met, and see paintings reflecting these stories. These stories have been told and retold for millennia. 
For those reasons alone, it's incredible to be encountering these, but how much more that this is God's word for our edification to point us to Christ. So here we are in this very strange, strange story. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for him to help us to understand this. There's mystery here as we go through it. And we just need humility and wisdom to understand his word. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We do not sit and twiddle our thumbs and stare up into the sky and say, Oh God, speak to me. You have spoken. And you speak to us as you illuminate your word in moments like this. So God, the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your powerful work. You who hovered over the waters at creation. You who, was, you who were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. You who fell upon the disciples, you who have taken hold of our lives and sealed us for the day of redemption. We pray that today you would illuminate your word and apply it to our hearts. Father, this could be a life-changing day for many of us, for each of us. So, Father, we ask that it would be. We pray that you would speak to us and build us up in our most holy faith. We pray for those among us this morning who are not converted Christians, that you would help them to see clearly that they are not saved, Father, and that they would seek Christ, that they would fall on their faces and believe as your Holy Spirit grants them the gift of faith. We know that your sovereign work of salvation happens by means of the proclamation of, and encountering of your word. This is clear throughout the New Testament. As Paul makes so clear in Romans 10. That how will they believe unless they hear. And so Father we pray. That, that faith will come by hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. This day. In this place. For your glory. We ask. In Jesus name. Amen. So in this account. Of Jacob's marriages, Jacob's wives, whatever you want to call it. We see the Lord doing two things. We see the God of Jacob doing two things with Jacob. Two things to fulfill his promise, to be with and watch over him. We see the Lord directing first. That's in verses 1 to 14. And then we see the Lord disciplining. Verses 15 to 30. So only two points today. First, the Lord directing. The Lord directing. I think we would agree that someone's last words or words that are delivered at the end of life help us to understand that person's life as a whole. I mean, in some ways, especially if you have time to reflect on your life at the end, you're going to get a little bit of a, you're going to get a sense of the pulse of that life, of, of what drove that life. What has been the, the main force behind that life? And we certainly saw this last week with Paul in 2 Timothy as in Walt's sermon. Paul's heart and the priorities of his life pour out into this letter. It's amazing. As I was, as I was listening to the podcast and I heard Walt read the scripture at the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 1. At the very beginning, I was just listening to all of the, the, the depth 
of that first chapter. All of the spiritual content and meat. I mean, you could, you could, as Walt said, you could literally spend forever in a passage like that, just walking through it phrase by phrase. But what you're seeing is that the heart of Paul, the priorities of his life, his entire ministry, if you will, is being poured out onto the pages of this letter to his child in the faith. And we have something similar going on at the end of the book of Genesis, at the end of Jacob's life, as he is blessing Joseph's sons. He says this, it's interesting, in chapter 48, verse 15, we get Jacob reflecting on his life up to this point. And he says this, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Those are the last reflections of the patriarch Jacob. What's fun about going through a, a text like this and not just drop, not parachuting in here to, to preach a sermon on, on a particular topic or parachuting in in Genesis chapter 48 is that we get to put all these little pieces together and we get to go back and we read a, a, a verse like that and we get to go back and actually see this in real time playing out. We get to see how it is that Jacob can say at the end of his life, God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. In other words, Jacob will later recognize that God had been leading and directing him all his life, just as he had promised in the dream. And I just want to take a moment to to think through this reality. It is easier to see God's shepherding care in retrospect, right? I'm certain that the way that Jacob deals with what we're going to encounter today at the end, we get the sense that he deals with it well. But the way that he deals with it in his mind is probably far different. Or the way he engages with it or interacts with it or reflects on it in the moment is probably far different than the way he does at the end of his life. And that is because these things are easier to see in in retrospect, at the end. And maybe right now, you need to be reminded that there will come a time of retrospective thinking. And right now you're in the middle of something that feels awful, feels terrible. You are a Christian. God is your God. The God of Jacob is the God of filling your name in the blank. And yet he feels so far away and life is so hard. Things are so challenging. Things are so heavy. And this is where one day you can be sure, if not in this life, in the life to come, you will be able to say, God was with me my whole life. He was faithful. He was a shepherd to me. He was a father to me. And everything that happened to me, everything that happened to me was a part of his shepherding care. It's hard to say these things in the midst of tragedy. It is hard to say these things in the midst of difficulty. But they are true nonetheless. And the first phase of that directing activity of the Lord as we think about Going back to the beginning, after the dream, the first phase of that directing activity is what we see today. Jacob is fleeing from his brother and seeking a wife. He has absolutely nothing. He's just out in the middle of nowhere, walking around, going east many miles. And sometime after seeing and hearing from the Lord in his dream, he comes up to a well of all places. We've seen a lot of wells in Genesis so far. 
He comes up to a well. I want to look again at verses 1 to 14. It helps us. Repetition is good, and it helps us to see a little more clearly what we're about to unpack. So I want to read these verses again. Verses 1 to 14. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day, and it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Keep that that recurring phrase, mother's brother. Connecting back to Rebecca, his mom. He's, He's his mom's favorite. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. As we comb through these 14 verses, I think we see the Lord's directing or shepherding of Jacob in three major ways. And so for the remainder of this point, these are going to be sort of three things that we're going to look at, three subpoints, if you will. So we see God's shepherding of Jacob in three major ways. So here they are. In the approach of the daughter, in the movement of the stone, and in the welcome of the family. In those three things, the approach of the daughter, the movement of the stone, and the welcome of the family, we see God directing Jacob. So let's look at them. First, the approach of the daughter. No one can read this story without being reminded of Genesis chapter 24. In that story, Abraham's servant is sent by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. Abraham does not want Isaac to marry a Canaanite Woman, the Canaanites are slated for destruction. The Canaanites are a wicked, godless people. Go and read Leviticus 18, and you will see some of the things that the Canaanite people do, some of the debauchery and evil that characterizes this people. Abraham says, no, 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 no. I'm going to send my uh, son. I want my son to marry someone from my kinsmen. Going back to the family of Terah. Remember the line of Noah through Sham goes down to Terah. Abraham comes off of that. So he wants to send his son back. So he goes, sends his servant out to go and find a wife for Isaac. And on his journey, he comes to a well. 
He prays that God will send a woman who will offer to draw water for his camels, and she will be the future wife. And before he even finishes his prayer, remember Genesis 24, before the servant who's gone out looking for a wife, oh, is God going to be with me? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I think he knows. I think he's faithful. But he gets there, and he prays to the Lord. And before he even says amen, I don't know that he said amen, but before he even says amen, here comes Rebecca, the future wife of Isaac. She approaches and does exactly as he prayed. She goes to her father and brother who is Laban and announces everything. And the servant tells the story of God's faithfulness before returning to Abraham with Isaac's new bride, Rebecca. So here we are. Here we are with Jacob. Here we are at a well. And there happens to be, there just happens to be several shepherds there who know Laban at this particular well. And we see that Laban is Rebekah's brother, Jacob's uncle, and they know who he is. And as they are reporting on Laban's well-being, all of a sudden, Rachel, Jacob's future wife, (laughs) this is incredible, Jacob's future wife happens to arrive. All chance, right? All chance, just chance. These things just happen. Like this world we live in just happened to get here. And the eyeball, I went to an eye doctor this week, my terrible vision. And he looked down into my retina, looked at my eye. And I just said, I, I think he was a Christian. I said, it's amazing what God has made. It is not by chance, the human eye, not by chance, anything we see, not by chance, this, all of a sudden, Rachel there appears. She's a shepherdess who has come to the well also to water the flocks of her father. Just like chapter 24, here we see God's providence everywhere. Everywhere in this story, even though the Lord's directing is not mentioned explicitly. I love that about the story uh, of, uh, of Esther, for example. That you have a behind-the-scenes God. He, he is absolutely sovereign. And the story of Joseph is, is similar in that way. That, you, that, that God is not sort of front and center. They're explicit. He's implicit, but his hands are moving. He is God. That is what we have here. God's directing is not mentioned explicitly, but we know that his guiding hand is behind all of this Christian. Do you know that this is the case for you? This is not just a story. This is not just for Bible people. In fact, those of us who live now are in a greater place, redemptively speaking, than Bible people. Do you understand that? That is the reason the Lord Jesus says that that of all the people before, John the Baptist was the greater, the greatest, but not as great as those who are in the kingdom of heaven, who've come after John, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have greater revelation than any of those people. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. The indwelling of the Spirit, I believe that was the case in the Old Testament too, but we have the indwelling of the Spirit of the glorified Christ. Acts chapter two. How much more us if Jacob How much more those of us who've trusted Christ, who are blood-bought by the Lamb, as they were then too, but who come after Christ, how much more is this the case in your life? Do you believe this? Or are you just a practical atheist? Yeah, I believe in God. 
But everything gets you out of sorts, right? I mean, everything that's unexpected is a matter of annoyance. And in practice, really, it's just a world that got here by chance and you're just moving through it. Or do you see the hand of God in everything, every detail of life? This is the case for Jacob and it is the case for us. There is no less providence in our lives than there was in the life of Jacob. No less. And even though Jacob's faith in God is not mentioned explicitly, I think we see a joyful faith in verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. I think Jacob is saying, he doesn't say this explicitly, but I think part of what Jacob is feeling, thinking, and saying in his own mind is, God has been with me. This is amazing. How could it be Rachel here, uh, the, the daughter of my uncle here at this well now? He's just so exuberant over this providential happening. So that's the first, the approach of the woman, the approach of the daughter. Second, we see the movement of the stone. We're thinking about God directing Jacob, and we're seeing this in the, the approach of the daughter, and now we're seeing it in the movement of the stone. So it appears that there is a convention at work here. The shepherds join up to water their flocks so that they can work together to move the large stone over the well. And the stone there was probably so large so that no one could come and steal water, so that no one could come and poison the water, or so that animals wouldn't come and pollute the water or anything else for that matter. And so they got this massive stone, really quite, quite smart. They have this massive stone over the well, and they all congregate at the well. They, they, they've, they've agreed on a time. Maybe a couple, few times, they've agreed. They all meet there. The guys who are there early just hang out until the rest of them get there. And then they all work together to move this massive stone so they can all water their flocks. It appears to be a bit of a convention. So here they are, waiting on everyone else to show up. And it's at this time, this time, that Jacob just happens to come to this well. But when Jacob hears that Rachel is coming, He springs into action. He single-handedly moves the stone himself to ensure that Rachel's flocks, Laban's flocks, are provided for. This is interesting. I mean, here these guys think it takes, there's at least three of them already, right? Because there's three flocks. There's probably more than one shepherd with each flock. Maybe, because Rachel comes by herself, so maybe not. But at least three shepherds are already there. And what three shepherds say they can't do or won't do, whatever, Jacob jumps in there and does by himself. One commentator, John Selhammer, says this, one gets the impression early in the story that Jacob is about to do a mighty deed because of the special care with which the writer describes the size of the rock covering the well and the number of shepherds already on hand. In other words, what Jacob does is a mighty deed. Deed, subtle here, in order to account for this act of strength, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther commented that the Holy Spirit rushed upon the patriarch. Now, it's unclear if maybe that's a bit of an overinterpretation. I, I'm not sure. We know that the Spirit came upon Samson, and that's why he was able to do what he did. And in Judges, that's explicit. I think it's fair to say that something from the Lord directly is happening in 
this account. So we see the Lord's directing through the movement of the stone. God gives him strength to serve his family and future wife, to stand out in her mind and therefore have something to report, right? Because when he goes back to Laban, what can he report? This man moved the stone and took care of us. And he's our relative. So we see, we see God directing through the movement of the stone. And then finally, on this point, third, we have the welcome of the family. God directing through the welcome of the family. Look again at verses 13 to 14 with me. Here we read this. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. He probably told him things about Rebekah that only Rebekah could know. That only Laban, her brother, would know. This is quite a welcome, a reception for Jacob. He is embraced, he is kissed, and he is brought into the home with the recognition that he is Laban's very bone and flesh. He is a relative. He is family. Laban just wraps him up. And takes him in to the family. Kenneth Matthews, a commentator, sums it up nicely. He says this. The penniless, homeless Jacob found refuge in his uncle's house at the goodwill of the Lord. What we have here is a settlement. Jacob is settled. And what settled means for Jacob is safety. So from beginning to end, in these 14 verses, this is the main point. Get this. From beginning to end, in these 14 verses, we see the God of Jacob directing him, shepherding him. And it is this and many other accounts, which we will read and which are even unknown to us, that Jacob will reflect upon when he says at the end of the book in chapter 48, verse 15, the Lord has been with me all my life. He has shepherded me and cared for me. What are we to make of this for us? Yet again, we are confronted with the all-seeing, ever-present God. Your God and my God. This is our God. Not just a God. This is our Heavenly Father. This is a God who indwells us by the Spirit of Christ. He cares for us. And he can and does orchestrate every detail of our lives. Every tiny little thing. Every well, every camel. I know we don't have camels. But everything, every little thing in your life, not a pointless detail. And one day in eternity, you will be able to to, to see all the ways that God has done everything for his glory and your good while simultaneously doing that for everyone else around you who belongs to him. That's a wise, infinite, absolute, self-existent, all-powerful, omniscient, always present God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God whom we call Father. But that orchestrating work of God takes many forms And it does not, here we go, it does not always feel very nice. And that leads us to our next point. Yes, the Lord directs us. Number two, the Lord also disciplines 
us. So now we come to the Lord's disciplining. Look at verses 15 to 30. I want to look at these again. Verses 15 to 30. Let's just put them in focus. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Those of us who have wives, we know what that what that feels like, although I think our wives become too familiar to us and we become complacent. I know that I am guilty, and so this just hopefully shocks us back into realizing what a precious gift our beloved wives are to us. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years years. This really is one of the most dramatic, troubling stories in Genesis, in the whole Bible. It really, really is. What we have here is God. Ultimately, what we have here in this story, let's not, let's not just make it about what's going on here. Let's make it about what the Lord is doing, how the Lord is involved in this, because we just saw he's sovereign. We just saw he's providential. We just saw he orchestrates events of life, right? You have to put these two together. You can't read one out of the light of the other. So what is he doing? God is working on Jacob's soul. He is disciplining one of his own. Yes, God directs your steps. We like that part. We, we really like that part. God, help me. God, protect me. God, direct me. God, shepherd me in the ways we just talked about. But he also works on our souls with fatherly discipline, just as we do with our own children. We see a type in the relationship between us and our children, a, a type a little imperfect picture of the relationship between God and us, his children. He works on our souls with fatherly discipline. You can't have one without the other. You know the mark of false Christianity in a person's heart? is when they are quite happy to embrace a notion of a God who directs. 
But the first sign of something that even smells like discipline or that seems like strife or trial or whatever, they fall away or they become compromising. It's the mark of a false convert. It's the mark of someone who is not a legitimate son or daughter because a legitimate son or daughter is disciplined and responds to that discipline in a way that ultimately is for their good and honors God. So, you can't have one without the other. The first one makes us smile and cheer. The second one troubles us. But they both come from the same loving, loving God. Hebrews twelve six. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. After we discipline our children, we should say to them that we love them and that we discipline them because we love them. I say that to my son, and after he says, I know, Dad, you always say that. And that's because I want him to know that the discipline he's receiving is not a kind of punishment or a reaction from me because I'm annoyed with him, but it is because I love him. He's my son and my daughter, too. She's a little littler, but she still gets disciplined, for sure. So... We see that those who belong to us are disciplined because of that. And the same is true of our God. He gives us good fatherly love. Sometimes feels nice and sometimes does not feel nice at all. Up to this point, Jacob has been presented as an opportunist and a deceiver. And God is here giving him a taste of his own medicine. That's what we are reading here. This discipline really comes in three ways. And that's what we're going to finish up looking at this morning. This discipline from the Lord comes in three waves. The questionable treatment, the great deception, and the troubled home. So let's look at each of those with our remaining time. First, The questionable treatment. Jacob is neither a slave nor a hired worker. So if he stays with Laban, his uncle, how will he be compensated? That's the question that opens this section of the narrative. How is is Laban going to relate to this new worker in the home? I mean, Jacob's not just sitting there watching TV. He he needs to get to work doing something. But how is he going to be treated? Is he going to be treated as a slave or as a hired worker? Well, neither of those fits him. And so Laban is here probing to see what would work in this new economical, familial situation. Jacob wastes no time giving an answer. He doesn't want Laban's money. He wants to marry his younger daughter, Rachel, the shepherdess, the one he met at the well, the one whom he has fallen in love or lust with. Whatever we are to make of Jacob's attachment to Rachel... That is who he wants. She is the pretty one. Her older sister is dull-eyed, whatever that means. And it's unclear to commentators exactly what that means. Does that mean like sort of a a shining in the eyes literally? Or does that just a a way of referring to uh, features of the face? Or or what is it? It's unclear. But it is clear that there is a contrast here. Because Rachel is described as beautiful in form and appearance. So Jacob is all about Rachel. He wants to offer his labor as a substitute for the groom's betrothal gift. And it's here, even before we come to the great deception, 
that we get little hints that Laban is exploiting and mistreating Jacob. Now, they're tiny. They're little subtle hints, but they help us see, they help prepare us, the reader, for what's going to happen in a moment. And I think prepare Jacob for what's going to happen. Although it is Jacob's idea, seven years is an excessive amount of time for this. It appears to be twice the normal amount. That would be expected or should be expected historically. And this is not seven years of uh, pruning bushes. This is not seven years of sweeping off the porch. This is seven years of hard work. We know that because in just a couple of chapters, well, in the next chapter, two chapters, 3140, it says this, there I was. This is Jacob thinking about his work. He's talking to Laban and he's describing everything he's done for him. He says, there I was. By day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. So this is seven years of hard, sleepless, weather-beaten labor. That's what he will endure. And then when the seven years are complete, which flew by in Jacob's mind because of his love for Rachel, he has to practically demand that Laban live up to his end of the agreement. Do you see that? We don't have Laban going, okay, my nephew, here you go. Jacob, the language here suggests that he's demanding, okay, Laban, where is my wife? You told me. I've been working for seven years. Where is my wife? Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So we're getting these little hints of Jacob's mistreatment, which of course are preparing us for the bomb that is about to go off. And that leads to our second point here, which is the great deception. So we see the Lord's disciplining. We see it through the questionable treatment, but now we see it through the great deception. It really is difficult to work out the logistics on this one. I mean, what in the world is going, how? You read this, you go, how? There's so many instances like that, and we've come across a few of those. Some I won't even even mentioned some quite dark and you don't even want to talk about. But here we see it. How? How does something like this happen? Well, the darkness of the night, the use of wine, the presence of the marriage veil, all or some of these factors in some combination that we do not know about become tools in Laban's tool chest of trickery. Here, he uses all that he can to trick his nephew. Jacob thinks he's marrying and consummating his marriage with his beloved Rachel. And when he wakes up in the morning, it's Leah. He rolls over and sees Leah. And now that this marriage has been consummated, it cannot just simply be undone. Jacob is married to Leah. Incredible. One commentator says this, That Laban secretly gave unloved Leah to the man in love was, to be sure, a monstrous blow. A masterpiece of shameless treachery. Love that description. That's exactly what we have here. This is awful. This is really awful. I mean, all you have to do is just for a second put yourself in Jacob's shoes. And imagine this. Not awful because of Leah, but awful because of all the expectation in his heart and all the work that he had done and the, the deceptiveness, the depth of deception here. But it sounds familiar. It sounds familiar. 
Jacob's response in verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Now, Jacob could not have said that word without immediately being smacked in the face with his own sin, with what he had done to his father. How often has that happened to you? Where you're, you're arguing or, or uh, maybe you want to use a softer word with your spouse and you accuse them of something or you criticize them for something and immediately it's like a train. The Holy Spirit comes and says, but you, remember, you're actually getting on her about that. You just did that like 10 minutes ago. And that happens to us all. It happens to all of us in every relationship, particularly in marriage. And here we have the word deceived. And I know flashing through the mind of Jacob is a reminder, just as I did to my father. What we have here is the deceiving of the deceiver, the tricking of the trickster. God is confronting Jacob with his sin and helping him to understand that it has real tangible consequences. Do we realize that, people of God, that our sin has real tangible consequences? This is the principle in the Bible that says we reap what we sow. This is not karma. This is sovereign God who is the creator of his world, of us moral creatures. We reap what we sow. Proverbs 22, 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Galatians 6, 7, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. We know that Paul is talking to Christians there, not sowing to the flesh. God is not content to leave us uncorrected in our sin. Hear that, hear that. God is not okay with leaving you uncorrected in your sin. That should scare you to death out of your sin out of that habit of wickedness that you've fallen into, out of that pattern of rebellion against your father that you have fallen into, this should scare you out of it. God is not okay with leaving you in your sin. Just as a child is afraid when his father comes home and he knows that he's going to grab that spoon or paddle or whatever. And he doesn't want that. So too, ought the Christian to respond to this saying, no, I repent. I repent. Hughes says it this way. Jacob needed some trimming. He needed a compassionate spirit. He needed to experience some pain. He needed to learn humility. He needed some added dimensions to his character. He needed to grow in faith. He needed to stop trusting in himself. So God gave it to him. Because God gives us what we need. We parent according to what we think is good in our imperfect wisdom. And Lord knows it is imperfect. God parents perfectly. Perfectly wise, he always gives us exactly what we need, no matter how painful. And that is a model for our own parenting, right? Insofar as we parent for the good of our children, not for our own ends, we are being like God as parents. But here's what we need to see as we think about God's discipline. While God's 
Discipline highlights our sin. Listen to this. Lest you get discouraged. While God's discipline highlights our sin, it does highlight our sin. It also highlights the gospel of grace that deals with our sin. How? Because it is in the midst of our being disciplined for our sin that we are reminded that we have a heavenly father whom we belong to through his son Christ. Do you see that? So the discipline itself puts a a massive spotlight on our sin and at the same time puts a massive spotlight on our adoption through Christ that we are being disciplined as sons and daughters of God. So we see the great deception. Third, as we finish up this morning, we see the troubled home. Both Jacob and Laban could have moved on at this point, but they add to the problem by making another agreement. Laban justifies his deceit with local custom. And now knowing how passionate Jacob is about Rachel, he offers to give her to him as well. But for another seven years of labor, that's what Laban wants. And of course, Jacob bites. He's not about to say no to that. He wants Rachel badly. Whatever's motivating that. We have here Laban, the opportunist. He marries off both daughters and gets 14 years of labor out of his nephew. Man, this is a win for Laban. Earthly speaking, he has totally taken advantage of this, just like Jacob did with Esau. Calvin says, Laban treated his daughter as if she were a piece of merchandise. Laban, blinded by avarice, ensured that his daughters would live all their lives in a state of mutual hostility by giving them both to one man. Here, sliding into the sin of polygamy. We know from Genesis 2 that this is not the will of God. So after a week of being married to Leah, Jacob also takes Rachel as his wife. Now he has two wives and one maid servant for each wife. We're going to see how that develops. Gets even crazier. We got four women. And that's not why it's crazy. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> that's not what I was saying. But it gets... <laughs> not that, not that. It gets crazier because the web gets crazier. So we have two wives, two maid servants. One, take that, take that if you will. One loved and one unloved. Verse 30, he loved Rachel more than Leah. You imagine that? We're going to see how awful that becomes. Leah is the unloved wife. Rachel is the one who had to wait 14 years. I'm sure she has spite towards her sister for that. So the favoritism continues. There is a reason why such marriages were forbidden later in the law, Leviticus 18, 18. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Why? Because she will be a rival wife. There is an intrinsic rivalry here that is inescapable. That is what happens. And we see that. We'll get there. So how are we to understand All of this as we close. Here, human responsibility and divine sovereignty come together. Let no Christian philosopher say that 
we ought not to fall back on mystery. It's not a falling back on mystery. It's not a cop-out. It is humility. It is humility about our own rationality to say that there is mystery in the relationship between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. These particular circumstances are the fruit of Jacob's earlier deception, and yet God is sovereign over all of it. Just like the cross, right? God will build a nation through these two wives and through their maidservants. Twelve sons will be born to Jacob. Through Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah. Through that means, God will build a nation. But Christ comes through Leah. We'll get there. That's interesting. This teaches us a mysterious truth. Human sin does indeed have effects and consequences. Let no Christian fall back on divine sovereignty in excusing your sin. That is godlessness. And the Lord will discipline that right out of you. If, if you are using a theology of divine sovereignty to justify your slothiness and sinfulness, God will discipline that out of you. Beware. But human sin cannot thwart the purposes of God. In an ultimate sense, he is sovereign over it and will work in the midst of it for his glory. Even your lie, even your dishonoring of your mom and dad, even your theft, God will turn it for good, for his glory, for his eternal praise. In his sovereign control over his world. Let's pray to this God. Father, we thank you that you are sovereignly in control. And yet, morally and ethically speaking, how you call us to righteous living. And not to folly. Not to deceit. Not to taking things in our own hands. Not to trying to make Your purposes happen by our own strength and cunning. Father, thank you that you discipline us. Thank you that you make life painful for us sometimes. Just as the writer of Hebrews says that discipline hurts for a while. It hurts for a time, but it produces righteousness. Father, would we be those who discipline our children like you discipline us? Would we not be those who, according to the wisdom of this fallen world, world fail to discipline our children because of the things we read or the so-called professional advice of the psychologists and psychiatrists. Father, would we follow your word, the basis for all human rationality? Would we follow it? Would we do as you have called us to do as parents? And Father, would we do as you have called us to do as sons and daughters of God? Would we hear your discipline? Would we respond as the child who receives discipline does not throw a fit or get angry or bitter, but who submits to the authority of his mom and dad? We pray, Father, that we would submit to your authority, that we would not grow bitter in the midst of discipline, but that we would trust your loving fatherly hand and that we would repent and sow to the spirit and not the flesh. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.